0: Good morning. Um, My wife and I moved here to Pennsylvania about six years ago. Uh, We're from New York, we're from Queens, actually. I don't know if you can tell. Um, (laughs) We were looking for a church and uh, we were going to different churches. Now, this was strange for me because I grew up in the church that I was in So I was in that church for almost 60 years and um, never had any desire to find another church, but we had to when we came here. And uh, circumstances brought me here. Actually, it was because of little lambs and I came here one day to pick something up and um, I was brought through the back and I walked through the back and I said, there's something different about this place. And uh, we came to one of the meetings and actually Brother Derek wasn't even teaching that day. And um, we used to call each other brother and sister in New York. That just came out, sorry. (laughs) Didn't even realize it. But um, we came to one service, and we went home, and we said, why are we looking anywhere else? Because we just felt the presence of God here, and we could feel um, the moving of the Spirit here. As I said, we came from New York. Um, I taught did a lot of things, but I taught middle school music for 35 years or so, seemed longer, but it was, um, (laughs) but we had, we had a good time there. Um, I did a lot of different things, and just so I could keep my uh, well, you know, school teachers back 40 years ago, they didn't really get that much, so most teachers had some other supplemental job. And one of the things I would do is tune pianos. So after I taught my students all day, I would go and tune pianos in the afternoon. and Sometimes I would tune one or two, sometimes three or four, and it took a long time. So at times I would say, you know, time to get something to eat while I'm just waiting here. and. Um, Not gonna be home for a while for dinner, so I'll just get something. And now in New York, we have bagel shops. You don't really have too many bagel shops here. Uh, That's one of the things that we miss, right? That's one of the things that we have missed is a bagel shop. They're not the same as your supermarket bagels. And I would go to find a bagel shop, and there are a lot of them there. So they make them there, they're fresh, they're big. And usually you get them with the cream cheese in it, which is at least a half inch thick of cream cheese. And uh, so I would go and I would find the shop and I, in the way in it was like, okay, just get the bagel and leave. Don't get anything else. And I'd walk in and they'd say, what well, can I get you? And I'd say, okay, an everything bagel with olive cream cheese. And as he's making it, I'm like, why did I do that? I know I don't want that on there. It's too much, I shouldn't eat that much. And they come and say, okay, anything else? I say, yeah, throw in a sesame bagel. (laughs) And I get in the car, and again, you know, you beat yourself up. Why did I do that? So I say, okay, I'll wait for the sesame bagel. I'll eat that tomorrow or maybe give it to Kathleen. You you didn't know this because you never got them. They never (laughs) made it home. (laughs) So... Of course, by the time the day was over, they were all gone. So I'd go home and I'd say, okay, so I won't eat all of the dinner that Kathleen has made, but she's a good cook. So I'd eat the dinner. You might not have had those situations, but I think you get the idea of self-control. And there was none at that point. And the funny thing is that I would do this over and over. It's not that I would just do it the one time, this is something that I would do. Um, Today we wanna look at the the passage in Galatians that deals with the fruit of the Spirit. So if you could open up to Galatians 5, I'm gonna read some of this to you. Now this comes from a passage that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia comes right after a list of behaviors that Paul says that we shouldn't be doing. That this goes along, these behaviors go along with a life that's not committed to God. He does this literary thing that was common at the time. He would take two contrasting lists. So he starts off with the lists of the the works of the flesh, and then he compares that to what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And we can read here, starting of Galatians 5, starting, let's go back to verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit. Another translation says, let the Spirit be your guide, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Or another translation says you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Another version says there is no law against these things. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ, have, been crucified, or have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. Now Paul begins and ends this passage that he talks about the works of the flesh. He begins it with something that's very interesting. If you look at verse 19, very short little phrase. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. And I like that because I think that For us, as believers, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sin is obvious to us. And he ends this phrase with, he gives this whole list of them, and then he says, and anything similar. In other words, any other sins like this. You get the idea that Paul anticipated somebody reading this and saying, well, he didn't mention this so if he didn't mention this, you know, I can probably squeeze that in. I can get away with that. I mentioned I taught in a middle school, and middle school students, whether they know it or not, they're noisy. Um, they don't even try to be sometimes, but they can't. Do we have middle school students here? I have to be. Okay, so I'll be nice. Um, now I taught them. Now I'm still teaching over at Covenant Christian Academy. I still teach the upper school, so I still got them. Um, I love them, but you're noisy. And I would be in the class, and I'd be in front of the orchestra, that was usually what I taught, and this one would be talking, and that one would be plucking, and this one's playing, and this one's doing something, and, and I'd want them quiet. So you say, you be quiet, You know, stop talking, and then this one's doing this, stop doing that. And after a while, I got to the point where one day I got up in front of them, And I just said, stop noising. And they looked at me, one kid said, that's not even a word. I said, well, look it up in the pro dictionary. It's in there. (laughs) So one kid would do something. I said, nope, that's noising. Stop. Another kid would, you know, through the year, nope, stop. That's noising. And they got it to the point where every year I would tell the sixth grade group that this is what noising is. Stop. I noticed I even do it here when I'm teaching the upper school. Actually, last week I noticed, I was we were babysitting, we had all well, five kids over, and they're seven and under, and they were doing what the kids do, and I just came out and I said, guys, stop noising. And they knew what I meant, and they stopped. So you can use it if you want. But, so this is what I think Paul was anticipating when he said this. Basically what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, he's saying, you know what sin is, you know what sin does, now stay away from it. So let's take a look now at the fruit of the Spirit. And if you notice, it's the works of the flesh, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's not plural. Paul puts them all together. You can't pick and choose the fruit of the Spirit. They work together. I mean, who doesn't want joy, peace, love? I mean, those are all great things, right? Uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness. These are all great things to have. But you know, when you get to that last one, which is self-control, for me, I look at that and I say, well, that, that's going to take some work. That takes more doing than the others. And I think that's exactly why it's in here because it does take work. And without the self-control, the other eight fruits are not going to be evident. We need that self-control. Now I was looking up, I wanted to find some evidence of lack of self-control. And I was, I, I was looking on the internet for a few things. And the, the funny thing was that the best places I could find for lack of self-control came from our government Surprise, okay? Have any of you ever heard of the cheeseburger bill? I like this bill. The cheeseburger bill. And I'm just gonna read it to you from the website. Uh, this is from Chuck Sackett. He's a contributor to a Christian website. He writes, in late June 2002, Caesar Barber filed lawsuits against McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Barber claims they sold him the food that made him obese and that they should be held accountable for wrecking his life. Gregory Rhimes and eight other overweight New York children, figures they're from New York, filed suit against McDonald's Corporation. According to January 2003 article in Capitalism Magazine, the lawyer acting on behalf of these outsized teens is Samuel Hirsch. He says people are too dumb to know what's good for them and that McDonald's has an obligation to make, their, uh, make known their food is unhealthy, just like they should have warned, remember this one, old Stella Liebeck, uh, that it's not a good idea to get in a car and stick a cup of hot coffee between your legs while you're trying to get the lid off. You remember that lawsuit that she sued them too? Uh, because of these lawsuits, Congress passed the, the cheeseburger bill through the House in 2004 and 2005. It didn't pass in the Senate, But here we have our government who is trying to tell us how to have self-control, basically. Um, There's another example. Uh, This is the gambling pigeons. Researchers at Oregon's Reed College are hoping to learn about the behavioral economics that drive gambling addictions in humans by teaching pigeons how to play slot machines. Thanks to $465,000 grant, from the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, those researchers plan to teach pigeons to use a monetary currency to decide whether to earn, accumulate, spend, or gamble tokens in self-contained economic environment. It's not immediately clear how participants in the study were able to goad the pigeons into gambling. The research aims to develop a laboratory-based system for examining behavior from an economic perspective, the description read. Such perspectives have been fruitfully applied in recent years to substance abuse, gambling, and other types of risky choice, finance, obedience, and self-control. The project began in 2020 and will continue until 2023. So here we have people looking all over the place to find out how they have self-control. Now, personally, I think that this group should have done a study on themselves for self-control. I think that would have been more beneficial. But you know, we're looking all over the place, but we have so much in the Bible that tells us about having self-control. And we don't have to study pigeons, we have to study the Bible. So let's take a look now at the, at, um, the Bible and what the Bible says about self-control. And we can go right to Paul. Paul talks about this a lot. Um, I'm sure we all struggle with self-control at some level. Uh, Everybody is different, so we'll all have our own uh, own issues with self-control. But this is what Paul writes, because Paul even struggled with self-control. In Romans 7, Paul says, in fact, I don't understand why I act the way I do. I don't do what I know is right. I do the things I hate. When you think about that, here is Paul saying this. and you know, We look to Paul for the person to lead us to show us what's right and how to live, and here he's saying, I, don't, I can't even control myself sometimes. I do the things I don't want to do. Now, I don't, think that, I don't think he was referring to eating too many bagels. I think he's referring to the sections that he mentioned in, in Galatians and all of these sins that he's talking about, and I think he, was, he had some struggles too. So he's talking about these things and, you know, we look at this and we say, well, if Paul had these struggles, well, how can we possibly get through life without struggling with self-control? Well, let's take a look at some uh, of the examples of self-control that we find in the Bible. There are four people that I want to look at. They're two separate groups, but they're, they're together. Let's go to, if you open to Daniel 1, turn to Daniel 1 in your Bible. And we're going to look at Daniel, and we're going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four people. And the Bible tells us some of the things that they did as far as self-control. Now, it doesn't say that they always had self-control. We're reading these these situations here where they had self-control. And let's just take a look here. Uh, Now, I could just tell you this and try to get in all the details, but I'm gonna leave it out, so we're going to read this passage together, so just stay with me in it, okay? Starting right in verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for all instruction and all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. He gave them Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So here you have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're taken uh, and, and brought into captivity in Babylon. And their, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to take the best of these captured people and bring them into their culture, into their society, and train them to be part of the Babylonian culture. But first he had to remove the Hebrew culture from them. So for three years he he went through that process. The first thing he would do would change their names and he took away their Hebrew names and he gave them Babylonian names. And then we read that he took their, their food away and he wanted to give them the rich food that the king had in his court and this was going against the food uh, that was permissible that God had instructed the Hebrews to eat. So let's continue in verse eight. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official not to defile, not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel favor and compassion from the chief official Yet he said to Daniel, my lord, the king has signed your food and drink. I'm afraid of what would happen if he saw your faces looking thinner than those of, your, of the other young men your age. You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. Here you have these men who were committed to God. And the first thing that we read about them up at the beginning in this passage of Daniel is that they refused to eat the food that they were served. As I said before, this was food that was not, you want to call it kosher? It was not the food that God had prescribed them and gave them to eat. And they knew that, and they refused to eat it. And then we see that even though they didn't eat it, The four of them grew healthier. Let's read on. Um, So as time goes on, let's skip ahead and let's go to Daniel 6. All right, turn to Daniel 6, starting in verse 3. Here we see that these men became more and more important in the kingdom. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to to find charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. Now you notice this is a different king. We were with Nebuchadnezzar before, now we're with King Darius, different king, okay? Different time here. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that, as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the document. They thought they had the perfect plan here. They thought that they were gonna get him now. I mean, put yourself right now in, in Daniel's position you were offered everything that you could have in the king's court. This was a lot, okay? The, the, the food, the, the housing, anything, that the entertainment. You had it all over here. And all he had to do was say, okay, we'll give in. But he never did. He never lost his self-control. He never lost his faith in God, too. When Daniel had learned, verse 10, when Daniel had learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upper room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So he didn't go and hide. He continued to have his private time with God, He didn't change anything, even though he knew what the consequence was going to be. 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any man who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles has ignored you, the king, and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. And as soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went to the king and said to him, you as king know it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now this is an important phrase too because here we see that the king knew about Daniel. The king knew about his devotion and his commitment and his faith in God. He had known that. That's what he says here. May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. He, He Knew something about God here. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out, in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They haven't hurt me, for I was innocent before him. Also, I have not committed any crime against you. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den uninjured, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. And we see a beautiful picture here of Daniel, the self-control that he had, uh, the faith in God that he had, and that even in, in this these situations with lions right next to you, even in that situation, he never compromised his faith. He never gave in. And how did Daniel have this self-control? Well, we go back right to the beginning of the book, and you go to verse 8, Daniel 1, verse 8, and we read that Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. He had determined this early in his life. He established this. I had a a Sunday school teacher, I I guess I was in my teens at the time, and uh, we were talking about um, making decisions early in our life of how we're going to live. And you know, I, I don't remember most of the things that we hear in church, uh, but certain things stand out. This is one of those things that stood out uh, throughout my life. The teacher had explained to us that, or, or asked us, you know, what would you do in this situation? And I remember one of the guys was in there, and he said, well, I, I just don't know. I'm just, I just have to wait till I get there and then find out what I do. And she says, well, that's not good enough. We have to determine now at your age, as, as younger people, determine already in your heart what you're going to do when trials come your way. Life isn't going to be easier as you get older. And what are you going to do, and how are you going to stand, and what faith will you have? Make these decisions now. That's what Daniel did. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. Too often, we try to struggle through problems in our life. And we try to do these things on our own. And then we fail, and then we feel guilty, right? I mean, I've, I've been there, I, it happens often. Um, but we have to remember where our self-control comes from. We have to remember, as the title says, who's in control of your life? Let's jump to now, let's look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So now we go back in time again to the king Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not going to read the story, I'll just read a little bit of it, but you, get, you remember the, the big tower he built, uh, not the tower, the, the statue he built, 90-foot-tall statue, nine feet wide, out of gold, and he said that when The the instruments play, when you hear the music, everybody has to bow down to the statue. Now, we we know this story. These two stories that we're hearing, this is what we hear in in Sunday school, right? You remember it from way back. Um, Hopefully you've read it since then, but if not, here it is. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they refused to bow down with the punishment of being thrown into the fiery furnace. So they knew what the consequence was going to be, but they still wouldn't bow down. The king is furious. Uh, Daniel 3, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? He's a little full of himself here. Who can rescue you from me? We might not be confronted with this type of a situation, but we do come up with situations in our lives that we have to make decisions on and where our faith comes into play. What do you do if your child comes home from public school and is told, we hear this over and over, no, you can't have your Bible in school, can't pray. Uh, This happens even at work. You hear how in some offices you can't have your Bible out. You can't even wear a cross. You can't make any show of your faith in God. Well, what do you do? I've had some instances like that in uh, my teaching. Uh, you know, we're we're told you have to have that separation of of church and your religion, and don't mention God and don't do. But with me, whenever they started to say things like that, there's just part of me that rebels. So um, even if it was just silently, um, I would, remember the VeggieTales? VeggieTale ties? that They were VeggieTale everything years ago. And I would wear a VeggieTale tie to school. Most of the kids just thought, you know, he's got a cucumber and a tomato on his tie. (laughs) Others that went to church and knew or knew VeggieTales, they would, talk to me about it and say, ooh, Tales, I like that. And once they started, I knew who I could talk with. And I would bring things up every once in a while when they would say it, because sometimes we had small lesson groups and we'd be short of alone and, and they'd mention it and I'd say, oh, what church do you go to? What do you, do you play this? Do you do this here? Do you do that? What do you do? And I would open up that door and I would have kids coming back to me to talk with me about certain things. I remember one girl, she was, I I think she was in the sixth grade. And I had been teaching her sister, who was one or two years older. Um, Both phenomenal violinists that you don't see much, but the one girl came to me. They had, I'd known the parents, and um, they knew that I was saved, a Christian, and involved in the church. And one day, this little sixth grader comes in. And she would ask me about it, and she was asking me about my, my faith, and I'm a believer, and, and I remember her face, she just lit up. She says, that means you're my brother. And I said, yeah, I am. And every once in a while when we were alone, she, was a, she would call me brother. And there was this little connection that they had. I had a time when my, one of my principals came to me and he was, he was good, he wanted, he, he was very pro-Christian um, literature in our music. And he came to me one year before I retired and he said, listen, I want to have, but the day before Christmas Vacation, which is not called Christmas Vacation there, um, I want to have Christmas music in the hallways. Can you put together some stuff? And I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm not doing Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer or, you know, Dominic the Donkey. I said, I'm going to do real Christmas music. And it's going to talk about the birth of God, the birth of Jesus. And I remember him, his answer was, I wouldn't have expected anything different, which really. Helped me because I, I figured okay he sees something here, and we did it. And uh, you know I said you you might be getting some phone calls, you might be getting some some people complaining. He says I deal with complaints every day. This is not a big deal. So just just do it, and we did. And we I didn't get any complaints. I don't know if he did. He didn't tell me. But we might not be at that level of persecution or punishment for doing and and. Uh, for for living our lives in in public and being um, a witness and a light. But we do have some things that we can can stand up for. And everyone here is different. Now, don't get me wrong, I did not stand up all the time like that. There were times when I felt like I blew it and I missed opportunities. But we have to keep our eyes open. Let's go back to the story here. So the, the question that... The question Nebuchadnezzar asked was, who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is verse 16, they replied to the king, and they said, we don't give you an answer to this. We don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, and who, I'm sorry, and he can rescue us from the power of you the king, but even if he does not rescue us, they take it one step further here, even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know as king that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how God was going to deliver them. They didn't even know if God was going to deliver them, but they knew that God was in control no matter what happened. And we know the story. They're punished because they didn't bow down. They're punished. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And we read the king says, verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So they did survive, but they weren't alone in the fire. We have to remember that. We might not see that, that extra person next to us, but we have the Holy Spirit that is with us constantly. And again, we look at these men, and we, can, we know that these men were prepared for something like this. They didn't know what was coming, but they were prepared for something like this, again, because they had established this close relationship with God. And that when trials and the temptations and all of these things came, they were ready. They had this self-control. So the Babylonians, they wanted to take everything away from them. They wanted to take away uh, their, their religion, their names, their food, their government, their culture, but the one thing that they couldn't take away was their faith in God. And that's something that nobody can take away from us. Nobody can take away our faith in God. Now let's take a look over here at Paul. We'll just end with a few verses from Paul uh, into the New Testament now. Paul writes a lot about how a a believer should live. Uh, He tells us that we're free from the bondage of sin. He tells us that we have a new life through Christ. If you look in Romans 6, there are just a few verses I'll read to you just to give an idea he, he talks so much about this, but I won't read everything he says. Uh, Romans 6.6, 6, We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And verse 11, So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin, and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. I think this is so important for us to remember. We have to remember that our sinful life was crucified with Christ. We don't have to live the way, we should We should not be living the way we lived. But we don't have to do this on our own. Let's, uh, in Galatians, Galatians 5.1, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. And in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when we, believe in Christ and the work he's done for us on the cross, we shouldn't be living the way we used to live. We're dead to sin. We're alive to Christ. We're no longer bound by the work of the flesh. But as Christ changes our thoughts and he changes our desires, we produce more fruit. But that change is something that's an ongoing process. A few weeks ago, uh, my granddaughter, Abby, came to me. She's the one that sits over here um, for worship. She came. We were babysitting her. And uh, she's she's six, so she does six-year-old things. She tries so hard to be good and to do the right thing. And uh, she did something that I had to talk to her about, and I, I really with them all running around, and they are all doing something. So I I don't even remember if she didn't do something I told her or did do something I told her not to do. Whatever it was, I was talking with her and um, explaining things. And she just looked up at me, and I could see, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. And her face just welled up in tears, and she reached, reached her arms up to me, and she just started bawling, and I picked her up. And she says, I try so hard to do what's right. I even pray every night. But sometimes I just do the wrong thing. So I talked to her, and I I wanted to tell her, you know, honey, you're going to be dealing with this the rest of your life. (laughs) But I didn't. I did tell her, you know, your mother had this problem too. (laughs) So... I did. But, you know, she got it right. She knew she couldn't do this on her own, and she knew she had to take it to God, and she prayed about this. And we should be more like the children, right? God never meant for us to muddle through life on our own, but like Daniel, we're to have a continual relationship with God, a deliberate planned time to spend with God to build up our faith. So let's remember that God has given us so much and so much um, instruction in his word, but he's also given us the Holy Spirit as our helper. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your word that shows us how we should live, and we ask that we remember that we're not alone here, on, our, on earth, we're not walking alone. Help us to remember that you are with us. And help us to rely on the Holy Spirit to be our helper, our counselor, our guide, our comforter. In your name we pray, amen.